in rural areas, when you're home, education is really not the priority. I mean, you can't tell your parent that, look, I can't go to the farm or I can't pound maize because I need to study. That's Catherine Soy, a correspondent for Al Jazeera. She's in Nairobi, Kenya, where she just did a story about the impact of COVID-19 on education there. But in every conceivable measure, whether it's health, employment, hunger, the heaviest toll is being felt in low-income communities. That's especially true and especially tragic when it comes to children, where disruptions in education are driving a deeper wedge between the haves and the have-nots. I'm Kevin Hurton, and this is The Take. The UN estimates the pandemic has disrupted education for nearly 1.3 billion students worldwide. Hallways are silent, classrooms are empty, and after-school activities have been canceled indefinitely. And so far, the dominant alternative model for education has been tethered to internet access and broadcast stations, both radio and TV. But not every household with a school-age kid in the world has internet, or even a working radio, or even electricity. So what's the long-term impact of this pandemic on kids who are already disadvantaged? Catherine's reporting in Kenya shows just how stark those disparities can be. Catherine, you did a story recently in Kenya about how school closures have been impacting students, and you spoke to two different families. Could you tell us about them? I did speak to two different families. When you go farther away from cities like Nairobi, for example, we traveled to Mwinge, and Mwinge is in the east um, of Nairobi, and it's one of the rural uh, areas. And the first place we went was sort of a peri-urban, the town center. It's called Mwinge Town. And we met a parent there. His name is Robert Chalo. So he and his wife have been supervising the three kids in their lessons, and they have a television Thank you for choosing the National Educator as your channel. Now, in just about so the children uh, get to watch all these government educational programs online, and it's very difficult for him because um, he says they have no guideline on what they should be doing. They have no syllabus that has been given to them. You know the program which is coming on TV. You cannot uh, follow it up to the latter because sometimes the kids want to relax. And sometimes they they tell you that you want to go out. They're not sure whether they're doing the right thing, whether they're helping their children well. So he says it's very, very difficult for them. But at least they have a television set. At least they're lucky in that way. We went farther in Mwingi, a very remote village, where we found a young girl. Her name is Rachel Mbathe. She lives with her mother and I think four siblings in this uh, one-room dilapidated madhouse. I don't have a working radio or TV. I don't even have a computer to listen to those learning programs. I'm afraid when I go back to school, I'll be behind the children who have those devices. We visited Rachel's family um, at around midday. They'd already had a full day because Rachel had already uh, gone for 30 minutes away from her house. That's where they go to fetch water. So she has to do that every morning. 
it's a planting season. So they have to go and do some farming. So Rachel has to do this before finding time, just before sunset, to see whether she can just revise uh, what they have already learned in school. And I mean, she's a representation of many other children. Many rural Kenyan parents right now are welcoming the additional help in the fields. They see this time away from school as an opportunity. But schools also provide regular meals to the kids. And Catherine said that for children like Rachel, school closures are costing them their main source of nutrition. When we went there, they did not even have enough to eat. On, on that day, she was making fermented porridge uh, for um, her family. And that's the only meal that they were going to have on that day. Now, back in school, she's in boarding school, would have three meals a day. And in Kenya, we have this school feeding program. And Mwingi is one of the areas where children benefit from school feeding programs because the soil is not very fertile. It doesn't uh, rain often. So it's one of the drought-prone um, areas uh, of Kenya. So children are very, very vulnerable indeed. And, you know, when you look at Mwingi and other parts of the country, the north and other parts of the east as well, the situation is very dire. And now this pandemic has just made it even more difficult for children. Schools in Kenya have been closed to 17 million students since early March. The plan was to reopen schools in early May, but now Kenya's Minister of Education is pushing that back another month. But they won't delay school exams. So it sounds like students are going to be expected to show progress even after an unprecedented spring. In the interest of the safety and lives of our children, our beloved children, the government has decided to extend school closure for one month, effective from the date of opening. So there's a lot of uncertainty how all this will play out, what will be the impact um, on the children, will the children be able to sit and pass their exams, that perhaps the government needs to introduce classes in a safe way, have kids go back to school safely. But then there are other Kenyans who are saying, look, this is a pandemic, this is life or death. We need to deal with the uh, pandemic first and then organize and then, you know, deal with education later because kids are basically resilient and they can be able to bounce back. But that resilience has its limits. And Catherine says it depends on a few things. It depends on where you are and your financial status. Now, I can tell you that right now learning in private schools is going on. Uh, virtually, and teachers are making sure that there are enough resources to reach their students. But obviously that costs money. So we have kids in all these areas, in rural areas, in slums, who really are idle and have nothing to do. But then again, in their families, there's all these other priorities as well. So a lot of parents, especially in poor households, tend to put education in the back burner. Even getting their children to just revise what they've learned before in books and things is difficult because there's all these other things that have to be done. So, I mean, there's a huge disparity and it depends on where you are uh, and, and the tools that are available to you where you are. When schools are closed, Rich and poor kids are moving in opposite directions. Justin Sandifer is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. He's a development economist who works on education, among other things. 
And he says this divide spotlights the impact of the pandemic on low-income households everywhere in the world. More affluent households have access to internet, have access to various sorts of remote learning opportunities. They're going to have more books in the home and more educated parents to keep them engaged. Whereas, you know, lower income households are really going to be reliant on schools for all those things and they don't have that. So I think there's a real risk of exacerbating the socioeconomic gradients in educational outcomes while schools are closed. And that could carry on for the, this cohort of children on through their educational careers because of this interruption. Justin said one thing most economists agree on is that we're headed into a recession, probably a deep one. And that means governments are going to be slashing budgets, which will inevitably include education budgets. And this might seem obvious, but it's worth emphasizing. Budget crises hit poorer countries harder, and they can't do as much to shield public services from cuts, services like education. This is where the difference, I think, between rich and poor countries really shines through. Because while the economic crisis is likely to be quite global, we're all going to be hit In richer countries, there is more capacity in our fiscal systems to smooth that hit and to protect education budgets to some degree in the time of crisis. But in low-income countries, if you're in a recession, the government's losing revenue. It doesn't have the ability to smooth that shock so easily. And so that lost revenue, in many cases, is going to get passed straight through to reductions in education budgets. And this is the problem. Cuts to school budgets could have huge and lasting impacts on kids, especially in poor, rural parts of the world. And especially for girls. The UN has clear data on this. For every year that a girl stays in primary school, her eventual wages go up 10 to 20%. And Justin said, we know that a disruption like this could totally derail their education. The longer that schools are closed, you know, the less likely it is that some kids will ever return. I'm somewhat optimistic there. We have the experience of the Ebola crisis in 2014 in West Africa to look at, where schools were were closed for multiple months in Liberia and Sierra Leone in particular, and then reopened. And there's good news and bad news there from that story, though. I think the good news is, is that a lot of kids did come back school. So that's a hopeful sign, even in, you know, those are some of the poorest countries in the world, which were really ravaged by that epidemic. The bad news is, is that kids were extremely vulnerable while they were out of school and their households were under severe distress and, and, you know, food insecurity in many cases. And so what we saw is a big increase, for instance, in adolescent pregnancy during that time. Teen pregnancy rates went way up. There's some interesting research at the time in Sierra Leone by a team at the World Bank and the London School of Economics showing how programs to keep, you know, girls engaged in alternative learning programs while schools were closed helped to reduce that risk of teen pregnancy during the school closure. So I think it it really highlights the need to keep kids engaged with some sort of education because when they're not, then it's not just that their test scores are going to erode, but there's other uh, real risks to children while schools are closed. We see those risks in school systems in Kenya. We talked to Evelyn Jepkame about this. Evelyn is based in Nairobi, 
She works for the World University Service of Canada as an education advisor. Her research focuses on issues centered around girls and marginalized communities as a whole. When you look at the effect of COVID, the most vulnerable are in general the poor, but especially women that are poor. To understand the divide in Kenya's education system, Evelyn said we have to look back at the country's history. Geographically, the population in Kenya, there is the western part of Kenya that is generally well endowed, very fertile, agriculturally and productive. And then the northern and the coastal part of Kenya is mostly dry and inhabited by communities that would be considered pastoralist nomads. And so for a long time, the government has not focused on investing in those places. The infrastructure is bad. The, the number of schools are few. And generally, the population is so scarce that moving from, from home to school would take about 50 kilometers for some cases. Evelyn said in Kenya, the cost of school closures isn't born evenly. They have three types of schools there. National schools, which are considered top tier, extra county schools, which are described as second in rank, and then county schools, the schools with the least amount of facilities. The kids in those schools, she said, are already marginalized. They suffer a double tragedy because, first of all, they don't even have enough in their schools. They don't have enough resources. They probably don't have enough teachers already. And now, even the few teachers that they had and the few resources that they, they had are, are unaccessible. And the worst part is, Evelyn says that Kenya has made significant strides in closing the education gap over the last 17 years. That's since the country first introduced primary education for everyone. Now, she says, it feels like they're in danger of backsliding and losing all that ground they've gained. I feel like after COVID, if we are not careful as a country, we are going to go back to pre-2003, where the enrollment was very low. And meaning that we need to think about campaigns to make sure that these children who are likely to drop out are not dropping out, but are coming back to school. And that can only happen if the marginalization is actually looked into and resources are provided resources in terms of, say, textbooks, classrooms, and even teachers. So for these kids who live in such communities, the challenge of marginalization is compounded. One, by the fact that they are not in a national school, and then secondly, they come from a community that doesn't believe that girls should be able to go to school. And that is what Evelyn said makes girls the most vulnerable during these school closures. She said that the longer the school doors remain closed, the further the girls get from getting an education. If you are a girl who comes from one of the nomadic pastoralist communities, there is a likelihood that you might not be able to go back to school. Because if schools can be closed arbitrarily, as those populations might see, then it means it's not important, and therefore you might as well just stay home. And so this COVID situation disadvantages those girls especially because it takes them back to where education actually removed them. So what does this all mean for Rachel? She's the young girl who lives in a remote village in Mwingi, who we met earlier in the episode. Catherine says there are a lot of challenges ahead for girls like her. I think kids like Rachel are very resilient. When we talked to her, she said she's doing the best she can. 
it's a difficult one because girls especially are most vulnerable uh, to say, for example, sexual exploitation, early marriages, and, you know, other gender-based violence. Uh, and, you know, we might have, if this is prolonged, we might have children dropping out of school. So it's really, it's really difficult for many children, but there is really cause to worry, especially if these closures go on for a, a long time. The government now says it plans to reopen schools in June, but nobody really knows. It's all going to depend on circumstances and whether or not it's safe for children. Catherine said educators in Kenya are thinking about how they can keep the education gap from widening. Because now it seems more important than ever. Resources are very stretched right now because of all these problems. But, you know, one of the teachers that I talked to said that this is a wake-up call really to the government to really invest in technology and expand access to the internet. It cannot be one of those back burner issues. It has to be a priority to expand the internet so that no children, no child is left out because whichever way we look at it, I mean, this technology is here with us and every child needs to be at par with the rest. So we need to bridge this divide and the government really needs to put resources in that. There's a lot of other priorities, but technology really is a big priority that that teacher told us if we want to see our children prosper. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Dina Kispa with Graylin Brashear, who's also Al Jazeera's head of audio, along with Priyanka Tilvey, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Kevin Hurton. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the Take's executive producer. We'll be back.